This is Sportsnet Today with Aaron Vickers and Peter Klein on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Putting a bow on this week as the sports drive or with the sports drive here on Sportsnet today. I'm Peter Klein. He is Aaron Vickers, and this is the Sports Drive brought to you by Calgary Lock and Safe. Did you know Calgary Lock and Safe also fixed doors? If you have one that needs it, visit CalgaryLockandSafe.com slash doors. If you missed any part of the program today, catch it in podcast form. Uh, hours one and two are available for you now. Uh, in hour one, we discussed Elias Lindholm uh, with Ufe Bodine. Now you and I will discuss Elias Lindholm as that is still a very big thing left on Craig Conroy's to-do list. Want your thoughts on this on the text line at 960 Zero. Uh, a lot of varying opinions on this with the uh, the contract situation of Elias Lindholm. His contract is up at the end of the year. He would like a raise and probably deserves one uh, and will probably be getting one. It's just a matter of will that be with the Flames or with another team. Um, Aaron, I will. there's a lot of different ways we can go. Uh, a lot of this coming from uh, an article on a, a website whose name I've mispronounced a couple of times today, so I won't even try this time. Should I be the one to put it on the line? Well, you, you said it phonetically, so I, I will... I, well, that's uh, how you say you, things, you, isn't sorry, it? you typed it phonetically, yeah. <laughs> you said it phonetically. You said it phonetically. Perfect. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but basically saying that uh, he is open to staying in Calgary, but if things don't go as planned, he is perfectly fine going to, to free agency as well. So uh, that's got a lot of people talking today. Yes, I believe, and I might be wrong, so please feel free to correct me at 960-960, but these are Elias Lindholm's sort of first comments since locker clean-out day here in Calgary, coming from Ronnie Ronkvist, who is a writer-reporter from Hockey Severier in Sweden. The big quote that I'm going to repeat verbatim, as translated by Uffe Bodin, because again, the article was originally in Swedish, Elias Lindholm saying this, I'm willing to stay. My agent in Calgary will handle most of it. There's a lot we have to agree on, but I've said that I can consider staying. After that, it's up to the agent in Calgary to sort out the rest. Then we'll see whether or not it works out. I have one year left, but if things don't go as planned, then I'll become a free agent. Nothing strange about it. We'll see what happens. Now, that's the English version. Yes. As translated by one of my favorite Swedes, Mm-hmm. But there's still probably a little nuance there that we're missing. Yeah. Again, this is a Swedish interview translated to English. But there are two key things there, PK. I'm willing to stay. And we've been waiting all summer long on Elias Lindholm. Okay, are you willing to resign or are you not willing to resign? Yeah. Well, he's willing to resign now. He said as much. But on the flip side, if things don't go as planned... Then I'll become a free agent. And to me, there's a lot of ambiguity in the if things don't go as planned. Because I don't know what the plan is. I don't know if it's Elias Lindholm's plan. I don't know if it's the Calgary Flames plan. Yeah. But I'm certainly very curious in finally getting a sense of what Elias Lindholm is thinking. 
entering the final year of his contract with the Calgary Flames. Yeah, like, is if things don't go as planned, I mean, well, we plan on the Flames uh, offering us $11 million. Uh, so if that doesn't happen, then who knows? I do get the sense uh, from reading that article, and again, like you said, that there's context missing, that there's uh, it, it translated and all those things. But it does seem like a lot of it does hinge on how things go on the ice. And that's something we've talked about. Last year was miserable. Um, he, he said in his interview he didn't mind Daryl's coaching style, but, like, everything went wrong, basically, for this team last year, and he said as, uh, said as much in the in the piece it does feel like the the first few months of the season are going to be very important i think in elias lindholm's decision as to whether or not he wants to to spend the next probably eight years with the calgary flames and that's a big commitment because you've already got five he's going to enter year six if i'm not mistaken and then you're going to tack on another year so the the large majority of his hockey playing career would happen in calgary yeah and the if things don't go as planned, well, I'm I'm just gonna put myself in Elias Lindholm's shoes. I want to play on a team that I know is gonna be competitive first and foremost. Yeah. I wanna play on a team that, to be perfectly honest, and I have no problem with this from a player perspective, I want to play on a team that's willing to pay me what I'm worth. Mm-hmm. And so those are the and then the third, I wanna play well, and this is in no particular order. I'm gonna make that caveat now as I just keep layering on more and more. I wanna play on a team that's fun. I want to, whether that's the style of play on the ice or just being around the boys in the room, whatever. I want to have fun. I want to win and I want to get paid. So to me, that's the criteria. I'm just guessing at if things don't go as planned. The plan is to get paid, have fun, win games. Yeah. And to me, these comments today don't scream, I'm going to be signing tomorrow. I'm going to be signing the next day. It's a, I need to see how much fun I can have. And I need to see if this is going to be a winning team because certainly I think to a degree, the money range is got to be dialed in between X figure and Y figure. Yeah. And so, you know, roughly your ballpark on what the money is going to be. So now you need to determine, is this an environment that you want to play in? And is this a team that's going to be competitive? Yes. Yeah. Winning makes uh, things, uh, makes it a whole lot easier to have fun. You know, like that, that, that can be tied to it. There is, um, I think, a lot that, that goes into it. And I, I do think, like, he needs to see that this team can be competitive long-term. I, I think that um, it has been a very roller coaster time for him in Calgary. Last year was certainly one of the dips. And uh, I think he is now at a point in his career where he would like to be competing for Stanley Cups. And also in his time in Calgary, I think that he has proven that he can be someone who is one of the better players on a team that yes. competes for a Stanley Cup. That there is a reason why when Patrice Bergeron retired, everyone was like, oh, well, Elias Lindholm would be a perfect fit for that as he does uh, maybe not as well. well. Not maybe. Definitely not as well as Patrice Bergeron, but does a lot of the things that make Patrice Bergeron really awesome. Um, he has he has thrived, and I, I think he has been an extremely important part of the, the Calgary Flames. I don't think it's a no-brainer from a Flames perspective that you just give him an, an, a blank check for eight years and you just go, take it. Whatever whatever you want, just you you, you can have it. The, the world is your oyster, sir. I, right. I think that there are a number of different factors that go into this from a, a Calgary Flames perspective. It is not just like so clear-cut. Sign him to whatever for however long. No, you've got to be decently careful on this. Because yes, he's one of he was he's a top three forward on the team. I think that's undisputed. Even in his down year, where he you know just inched over twenty and just over sixty points, 
but he was still top 10 in Selkie voting. Mm-hmm. Historically, he's produced to a 31 goal, 72 point pace. That's over the five seasons. That's assuming he would have played every single game because it's, it's it'd just be mean to go, okay, well, in the COVID year where he only played 56 games, he only scored X number of goals. So I'm going to call that a goal per, per season pace. <laughs> so when you do his averages, when you take, okay, he scored X number of goals and X number of games through his Flames career, he averages out to 31 goals, 72 points. Now, the concerning thing for me, I don't even know if concerning is necessarily the right word, but I'm cautious because even in a career season where he had 40 goals, 80 points, riding shotgun on one of the league's most, uh, the league's most productive line, you're still outscored by over 20 points by Johnny Gaudreau, and you were bested by 20 by Matthew Kachuk. So actually, mm-hmm. Gaudreau was like 35-ish. Yeah. And so you were significantly the least productive guy on a super productive line. Now, having said that, he was a top three, he was a finalist for the Selkie that year, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. So yeah, there that, are that elements would... above production that you're going to factor in. But when we start looking at some of the projected salaries, you're going, ooh, I really hope he's a 35-goal, 75-to-80-point Selkie candidate perennially if I'm going to be coughing up that money. And he wasn't that last year, Mm -hmm. simply put. Yeah, yeah, I, I think the argument during, like, uh, he was 20-whatever behind K- Kachuk and Goudreau would be like, well, I probably saved more goals than that uh, defensively out there. So You but, did like, free them up to do a lot of things. Yes, yeah, yeah. So the, he, he was certainly, uh, maybe he wasn't the straw that stirred the drink, but I, I don't think he was on the, the outside looking in either. Um, there, I, I've been surprised at fan reaction to, to some of this. Now, I, yes. from, from a Flames perspective, I do think, that eventually no answer is no, right? Like at, at some point, apparently, uh, according to, to reports, an eight-year contract worth a large sum of money has been on the table for basically since the season ended, uh, depending on, on where you look. And at some point, you have to be like, okay, so it's maybe not happening. But the the, fla- the, the fan reaction to that, I think, has been really interesting. And we're seeing some of it on the text line now. I want to circle back to some fan reaction with the... Okay. Uh... I'm willing to stay. And a lot of the text line is, Will, I'm willing to stay, get rid of them. Okay, first of all, this is words on a page. We're not getting, uh, you know, we're not getting body language. We're not getting posture. We're not getting the uh, intonation of how he's delivering the phrase. So yeah. I wouldn't panic on the I'm willing to stay element, especially considering the last comment was, yeah, we'll see what happens. I mean, I've got one more year to go. I can. I kind of have to look at it that way. I've got one more year, and that's all I can say. That was his comment on locker cleanout day. Yeah, and we could certainly see the body posture there. We could see the the tone of of what he was saying. We don't necessarily have access to that. We just have words on the page, so I wouldn't get too wound up about the "I'm willing to stay" quote and being like, "Well, that doesn't sound like a great commitment." Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it it's the only commitment you've got from him first and foremost. But he's like, "Yeah, I'm I'm willing to be here." Yeah. Also, what what do you expect? Last year was miserable. I didn't, oh, yeah. even, I didn't even want to watch the team. And it, it's not like all I have to do is sit on the couch and maybe take the occasional note, uh, depending on on what I'm doing after the game. But for for, for him, like this, this is his life. And he is now entering what is going to be his last big contract and his last probably productive years in the National Hockey League. So does he want to 
spend those years dealing with what they dealt with last year. And he is not blameless in what happened last year, but that had to have been miserable. And I don't think I would sign up for eight more years of that. So I don't blame him for not just jumping sight unseen with uh, with this new era of the Calgary Flames after last year's new era of the Calgary Flames following two years ago's new era with the Calgary Flames. Like I, I would want, if I were him, I'd want to see how the first few months played out. Um, and so I, I don't blame him for being a little bit, eh, let's see. No, and again, he's well within his rights. He doesn't need us. He's still under contract with the Calgary Flames. He's going to report to camp. He's going to be in the opening night lineup. He's going to be giving it his 100%, whether he's fully committed to Calgary or not, because he needs to be productive. Yeah. Whether he wants a contract from the Flames or 31 other teams, he still needs to go out there and play at a level and produce at a level that will net him the contract that the Calgary Flames reportedly kind of have on the table, the range anyway. So PK, what are you paying Elias Lindholm? Let's get right to it. Yeah, it, it's it's probably going to be an eight-year contract. Yeah, um, it's. I don't think that's that, that debatable. That not Your maxing term. Yeah. For me, it would be between eight and nine million dollars. Getting to nine is just anything over nine. Like, you're probably going to need to go over nine to, to get it done. Um, but anything over nine does feel a, a bit much for me. Um, and again, I have a ton of respect for this player. I, I think he has been a, a huge part of things for the Flames, but I would be in the eight by eight and a half to nine range for me. Well, this is going to be boring. Same thing. Yeah, I really don't like that nine figure. Yeah. And again, for me, it's because I don't know if he's a 35 goal, 75 point player. That's how he's averaged out. I mean, for those five years with the Calgary Flames, it was, it, to some degree, working with Johnny Goudreau, Matthew Kachuk. When those guys were gone, he had 22 goals and 64 points. Again, albeit in a miserable environment. Mm -hmm. I am not super productive when I'm unhappy. No. When I'm in a bad situation, I'm not going to necessarily suggest that I am at 110% cliche. Yeah. I feel like you might be the same way. So... I think that's also the hesitation of, oh, why didn't he just sign a contract in July or August, September, now that we're September 1? Yeah. Well, I think he needs to feel the vibes. Yeah. And if, again, you said it, if I'm committing eight years to being around an organization, again, you can sign for eight years, you can get traded in year three or four, whatever. Mm -hmm. But on paper, you're committing for eight years to the Calgary Flames. Yeah. I want to kind of get a sense of, okay, what, is, what does this look like organizationally? What's the plan? Are we going to be competitive? What's the mood? Are we a little bit happier? Is the, is the, is the room a little lighter? Is, are yeah. things less heavy? Are we allowed to have some fun? Can we crank the tunes and get down with the boys? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of that. Know, I need to know those things before I just kind of blindly go, you know what, eight years. Uh, a couple of texts at nine six zero nine six zero. You guys are nuts. Seven point five max. Um, I then you're not getting him. Quite frankly, I would be stunned. It would take thirty two teams offering seven point five. Yeah, get, like there's have to be some level of collusion. Yeah, like he is a number one center in the NHL. It's undisputed. Like, sure, is he going to be a number two in Edmonton? Yeah, is he going to be a number two in Colorado? Yeah, Vegas. There's certain level. Most players that are number one centers are going to be number two in those cities. Mm -hmm. This is purely subjective, 
but like even NHL.com had him ranked as the number 20th center in the NHL. And that's coming from outside of the Calgary market. That's wow. not Calgary internal. Yeah. Now, I'm personally not necessarily that high, but I think he's a top 25 center. And if you're a number one center in the NHL, you're getting north of eight. Yeah. At, at this juncture. And I'd be curious to see what that number jumps to for a guy that's going to give you roughly 30 goals, 70 points, two-way play, work both special of, teams. Get a bunch of Selkie votes, right? Like, and get a bunch of Selkie votes. When the cap jumps four mil, yeah. and then it jumps another three mil, and suddenly you've got more room to play with, I don't think 7.5 is, is a realistic target whatsoever. No, I don't think so either. Um, yeah, no, it, it, it would, Craig Conroy would need his own magician show if he gets that contract to, to around $7.5 million. Uh, millions of dollars to make you forget... Uh, the not so good times. Yeah, I don't I mean, know. Like, like places that offer you good times will offer also offer you millions of dollars. You know, like that's a very valid point. And I can look the other way significantly for millions and millions of dollars. But mm -hmm. at the same time, I can make that money and find a happier situation for yeah. myself. Yes, yeah, it is not one or the other. Uh, since he was unable to make up his mind all spring and summer, then he should move on, have lost a ton of respect for him this summer, hoping Connie moves him time for some more youth. Um, I, I'm not here to, to dictate who should respect whom, but I the, the lost some respect part for me, it's like, I, I get what, like, Flames fans here, and it, it has been a difficult time with players leaving and things like that, but I... I do, after how last year went, I do not blame anyone for being uh, a little hesitant uh, about locking in with this team uh, long term. Well, and let's call it what it is. It's the biggest business decision of his professional life. Yeah. So if you want to take some time, if you're afforded the luxury of having whatever time you want to determine where you're going to go with your professional career and really not compromise the financial aspects of it, yeah, then... I'm going to do that. And if anything, him dragging his feet is a positive sign for the Calgary Flames because he's not immediately ruling them out. And yeah. he wants to come back and he wants to, to me, the read is he kind of wants to give every opportunity to the Calgary Flames to show him why he should stick around. It's kind of a weird way to go about it in that sense. But if he can come back and it's a positive environment, again, the team doesn't necessarily have to be a Stanley Cup contender, I'm going to guess, in his books, but it needs to be a lot better than it was last year. Yeah. And the fact that he hasn't immediately um, counted out the Calgary Flames, I think is a good sign. I, I think there there are a lot of different layers to this. And I, I think him kind of dragging his feet, like you said, I think it also helps the Flames if they are trying to move him because you, you can go to these teams now who are apparently lowballing the Flames be like, look, he said he'll stay. Like, we don't have to trade this guy. Um, so you have to give us something good if we are going to to move him here on September 1st or something like that. Now, that leverage does, goes, does go away the closer you get to the, the trade deadline. Yes. But for right now, the, the teams that think, oh, you have to move him, give a, we'll give you a third. Well, no, we don't. You know, from a, a flame standpoint. Um, so I, I think that helps them in terms of a potential trade leverage as well, at least in the interim. Another interesting text, and I don't think these players are necessarily apples to apples to a degree. Um, Lindholm has the same number of points in the last two years as Sebastian Ajo of Carolina. Ajo signed for $9.75 million. Same for Lindholm, add 750K to match Huberto, better for the team, less cash for 10th or 12th forward. And I don't necessarily think you're, you should be going 975 
No. But if I'm Lindone's people, that's where I'm starting. You know, that like that that is the contract I am presenting. Is that this guy got it, so I, I think we should get it. Because they I I think Aho is a better player than Lindholm is. I think he's but, more offensively inclined. I think Lindholm yeah. I might give the edge defensively. Now you said something interesting there because if I'm Lindholm's camp, that's the contract I'm presenting. From the Flames' perspective, are you just presenting Bull Horvat, or is there another one that you mm. look at? Horvat does, I, I think, does make the most sense for for that comparable. I, I can't think of a, a better one, um, at, at least from uh, from their standpoint. So no, I, I think that's I think that is probably a good one, and I think that's probably if we're looking at these like arbitration cases, I think those are probably the the two that have been presented, and the arbitrator would, would pick somewhere. In the middle. And uh, just as a refresher, Bo Horvat signed an eight-year, $68 million contract with the Islanders on February 5th. That was after they acquired him from the Vancouver Canucks, of course. Cap hit $8.5 There is another aspect to this that I, I am interested in. We know what they, they could offer, and we know what, what we would offer. Should they? Because you look at this team. Uh, missed the playoffs last year. We had the discussion yesterday, and we kind of peaked at, yeah, they could finish second. Um, and that there is a world where I mean, a lot would have to go right. I'm right. the one that said that. Yes. I'll, I'll own that, but like a lot has to go right. The roster has to basically stay exactly the same, so on and so forth. Yeah. So like a, a lot would have to go right for this team to finish second in their division. Um, and you would be locking in Elias Lindholm right around the time he turned, like he's 28 now. He would be 30 and deep into his 30s by the time this contract is done. You have Huberto, who is 30, at $10.5 million for ever. Uh, you have Nazem Kadri, who's 32, at $7 million for a very long time. You still have Blake Coleman, who is 31. $4.9 million, but still through 26-27. Mackenzie Weger is turning 30 this year in January. He's at $6.25 million. That would be, while again, I think Lindholm is dope, but that's a lot of money to be locked in to a bunch of dudes in their 30s for a team that needs a lot of things to go right to finish second. I, I just... At some point, I do worry that you are kind of locking yourself in to, well, maybe we can squeak into the playoffs this year. And I I understand all those contracts I said are on the books already, so there is an argument to, that ah, may as well go for it while they're here. But at the same time, do you keep kind of piling on 30-year-old after 30-year-old after 30-year-old after 30-year-old in hopes that at some point something will break through? I mean, it's not ideal. Right. And you need players coming in on entry level contracts to offset that. And we'll see a little bit of that, whether it's uh, Jacob Pelche, Matt Coronado in the coming years, Sam Honzik. Um, you're counting on these types of players as Connor Zari. You're counting on these players to make the appropriate steps in their career and take those jumps so that you can use their cheap contracts and their second contracts to kind of offset the money you've given to the older veterans on the team. It's a, it's, it's definitely, I don't have an answer for your question to be perfectly honest with you because yeah, every long-term contract the Calgary Flames have on the books is either up with outside of Rasmus Anderson. If you want to count his three year, um, being a long-term contract, three years is a long time. He's 26 right now. It doesn't fit to the, that conversation, but outside of Rasmus Anderson, anybody signed, anybody signed longer than three years is either 29 or or 30, mm -hmm. 30 plus. Yeah. And so you'd be adding Elias Lindholm to that mix. Who's 28 now. So he'd be 29 by the time that extension kicks in. And by the time the 26, 27 season rolls around, your entire core is 33 plus. Yeah. And then you have, um, defensemen 
who you have two of them under contract for next year on the, the NHL roster. Um, you, you have, who knows about a, a backland deal, although 34. Um, Manjapani is up in, in a couple of seasons. Like, it, it's just, it feels like if you do this, you have locked in. And, and your core now, essentially, is Hubert Kadri with, with Lindholm, um, Uyghur Anderson, and probably Manjapani, which is fine, but I do think if you want to elevate to Stanley Cup levels, I I just don't know. My question to your question. Yes. We're going, uh, what was that? Leonardo DiCaprio, Christopher Nolan. In, Inception. Inception on you, on your questioning. Thank you for helping me out there. If you don't sign Elias Lindholm long-term because you're worried about the contracts you already have on the books, how long are you wandering around trying to find a number one center? When yeah. was the last true number one center before Elias Lindholm is is the argument to be made that Sean Monahan was? No. So when was the last one prior to Elias Lindholm? You are smoke is coming out of your ears. Yeah. That's a long time. You haven't even given an answer. It's a long time. Yes. So if you have the option to lock up a number one center through the years where eventually, unless there's some sort of magic recipe that he has, probably isn't going to be a number one center by the time that deal expires. But if you have the opportunity to make sure you have a number one center for the next two, three, four years, don't you owe it to the organization just generally for a team that's struggled to find a number one center for the longest time to do whatever you can to retain the one you have? I, you, you certainly can make that case. Yes. And I would say uh, after giving it some thought, the last, uh, the, the last number one center the Flames had was Joe Newendike, uh, which was a while ago. So that's uh, certainly all due respect to any center who's passed through. Since Craig then, Conroy, but, Damon Lenko. Yeah. My, 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 my comment stands. No, I, um, I was yeah. saying all, <laughs> all due respect, respect to them. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I, I just, and we, we have to go too. Uh, but you, you can certainly make the case that, well, you have Huberto and Kadri under these contracts. They aren't going anywhere. So you have to try to make the, the best of the, the situation. Uh, a la what the, the Dallas Stars kind of did, where, where Ben and Sagan are kind of falling off. They're wildly overpaid for what they do now, but the rest of the team is really sweet. And so they, they just kind of make their way through. Lindholm certainly helps you with that. But the, these are all the questions that Craig Conroy has to answer. So happy first few months on the job, buddy. Um, this is uh, all, The only thing you have to do now is a, a decision that will alter the course of the Flames history for the next uh, no, eight to ten years. No big deal. Yeah, that's all. Welcome to the job. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and you've also got 31 other GMs throwing you anchors. Exactly. Yeah, and your 26-year-old defenseman uh, wants to play in the States. So have fun with, with all of that, sir. My name is Peter Klein. He's Aaron Vickers, and this has been Sportsnet Today on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. We are into the Sports Drive here on Sportsnet Today. I'm Peter Klein. He is Aaron Vickers. The Sports Drive brought to you by Calgary Lock and Safe. Did you know Calgary Lock and Safe also fixed doors? If you have one that needs it, visit calgarylockandsafe.com slash doors. If you've driven past the Stampede grounds over the last little bit, you will see something big is going on as Cirque du Soleil's Cusa is in town now until August 8th. Get your tickets now. Um, Aaron has been. Yes. It, it seems oh. like an incredible show. I've never been entertained and nervous to the level I have been at the exact same time on Wednesday night when I caught the show. It was uh, a lot of words I muttered or uttered or whatever you do under my mm -hmm. breath that I can't say on air, um, I ain't going anywhere near that. Like I'm, <laughs> I, I am not, I'm, I'm not participating in any of those activities. Uh, wild. 
Yeah, um, it's something I have I have not seen it yet. Absolutely, it is on my list of things to do. And uh, one of the people very responsible for that, the head coach of Kuza, is Cherry Walker. And uh, Cherry joins us now. Uh, Cherry, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well, thank you very much. Uh, obviously, this is a, a very busy time for you, so we appreciate you taking a few minutes to, to chat with us. Um, now, first question, I, I have never been a Cirque du Soleil head coach. I feel fairly confident in saying I will never be a Cirque du Soleil head coach. Well, what does that, that job title uh, particularly, um, what, what does that require from you on a day-to-day basis? Uh, we have many different responsibilities on the daily basis, but a quick summary is that we're managing all the training of each and every one of the artists. So we have 54 artists that are on our show here at Kuza. Uh, we do trainings on a daily, weekly basis. So I manage these. Uh, behind the scenes, we're working with strength conditioning. I work with our performance medical team for injury management, workload management. And the ultimate goal is to keep those artists on the stage that you saw on Wednesday evening. Now, Cherry, you've been with Cirque since 2018, and forgive me because I do not know the answer to this, hence I'm asking you. I know how an NHL head coach gets to the NHL. I know how a football coach gets to the NFL or CFL. How does somebody become a head coach in a production by Cirque? Uh, There's a couple of different pathways. I'm a little bit more unique where I've come from high-performance sport back home in Australia. I did uh, exercise and sports science, I did a lot of coaching with gymnastics and diving, and I've actually done my PhD in biomechanics. And I saw an opportunity to apply for a role with Cirque, and 2018 was where the opportunity became real. So uh, just through applications and applying online, I did some traineeships where I learned about many different shows and how to transfer all my knowledge from sport into the world of entertainment. And other coaches come from performance. So there have been artists that are on stage. They come, they develop and become an artist coach. They'll then move into the coaching and then head coach roles. How unique is that application process? You kind of went through it a little bit. I wonder when you see a job posting with Cirque du Soleil come up, it's such a legendary production, like insane athletes, insane artists. What's it like when a job becomes available and you start going down that path of, maybe I can become a member, a a little bit of part of these performances with Cirque. I guess it's a dream. I was eight years old when I first saw a show when I was on a holiday in the United States. And I was an elite gymnast then. And I said to my parents, I want to do something with that company. So it's something that I, you know, strive to look forward to. And when the opportunity came available, I thought, why not? You never know if you don't give it a go. And, um, the interview processes were, it was hard. You know, they asked you many different questions and coming from sport, I knew nothing about the, the stage or live entertainment world. So I had to learn and adapt to that. But I think applying what I learned at university, sports, working with Olympic athletes to the stage, there's a lot of similarities there. I'm just curious. This is your third show in a coaching capacity. You were on Cordio and an assistant on Crystal. I'm just curious, does the role change at all from show to show? Is it pretty much the same thing? I'm just curious if there's anything that goes into adapting the approach or execution from show to show in your perspective. Yeah, there definitely is. So the roles and responsibilities um, are the same across the shows. So we do the training schedules. We work with risk management, so preventing, um, so risk mitigations. Uh, We do lots of reporting with all the different artists, planning, but each show is very different. So the first show I was on, Crystal, was an ice show. Now, 
the Australian in me doesn't work on ice. We don't <laughs> really have ice. We don't have much winter. So I was thrown in the deep end uh, working with the skaters. So I had to learn and adapt. I have a biomechanics background and a coaching background. So I know the principles of how the body moves. So I would spend a lot of time talking to the artists to understand what they do because some of them are ex-Olympic uh, Canadian team members and they taught me about their sport and then that helped me to be able to help them. Uh, so there's very many, very different disciplines. Corteo was a big aerial uh, show, so I learned a lot about the aerial performance arts of circus. And then Cusa is very traditional circus. So we've got the Wheel of Death, we've got High Wire, <laughs> the Teeterboard. So every show you have to learn and adapt the knowledge that you have. I love that it's called the Wheel of Death because that's exactly what I felt when I was watching it. And I love the fact that you mentioned risk management and risk mitigation. You manage all the acrobatic acts, the onstage, the backstage training. I went Wednesday. Are performances as stressful for you as they were for me watching? Because I was quasi-terrified for much of the show. No, I, I see it day in, day out. And I know the abilities of the artists. I have confidence in the artists of what they're doing on stage. Um, we have strict guidelines for integrating an artist into the show. So we do everything step by step. Um, we take the time that we need and they're on stage when they're consistent and performing those big acts that you see. Okay, so there are, like, what's what's the process for putting together a show like Kuza where... I mean, safety is going to be priority one, but uh, wow factor and, and just sheer enjoyment of the audience. Like, how do you balance those elements to make sure that the athletes and artists are safe, but still able to deliver such a, um, I guess, from my perspective, a scary-ish show? Yeah, I think it's just the behind the scenes. So this show has been around since 2007. Some of the artists have been here from the beginning, from the creation. So they're so highly skilled and the high wire guys, it's like walking on the street for them. The wheel of death artists, the same as riding a bike. So it's something that they know how to do with their eyes closed and their hands tied behind their back. So it's something that is natural to them. A lot of these artists have been doing these particular uh, elements since they're kids. And for me, it's, I make sure that what I see in trainings is consistent and uh, performed with high level of execution every day. But also, of course, we're trying to keep pushing the boundaries and pushing the limits so that the audiences are wowed every single night. So you mentioned the Wheel of Death and a couple other things. I'm just Tell me a little bit more about the show, or I guess tell the listeners. I've seen it, so I know kind of what to expect. But somebody going to Cirque for the first time or somebody seeing Kuza for the first time, uh, what can they expect from the performance? It's really high energy. So this show is... Uh, tribute to a traditional circus. So you'll see contortionists, so girls that can bend their bodies in different ways that not the normal human can, not even myself. Touching my toes is hard at the moment. Uh, so these girls amaze us, but their strength and power is something that we work on to make sure that they're consistently on stage. We have an aerial number where you see a beautiful Japanese uh, aerialist flying through the air doing performances on our aerial silk. The high wire, we have four artists that are performing at anywhere between five and eight meters in the air on a wire as big as your finger. Um, one of those artists is 61 years old, so they motivate me Ooh. every day to keep pushing and keep performing. Yeah, it's changed my perspective on how what sport did from a gymnastics level, diving level, to now I work with artists who are actually much older than me, 40, 50, 60 years old, still performing every single day on the stage. That, you know what? 
Never would have guessed. Never would have guessed at all with the with the yeah. level of performance <laughs> at all. This is going to be a mean question, so I am apologizing in advance. But is there a particular element of the show that you're most proud of? Oh, I don't know if that's a mean question. I think I'm proud of it all. There's there's a lot of work that happens behind the scenes that um, the audience doesn't see. It's more having that sports science influence on the show and looking at data and looking at how I can make the artist stronger so that then the acts get stronger and bigger for you as an audience member. So that's something I'm really proud of. One of the things we hear about um, with, again, like NHL players and things like that, where sometimes uh, coaches and, and training staffs have to kind of protect the, the, the athletes from themselves. We've seen a number of examples of, of hockey players playing through injuries. Ah, they probably shouldn't have played through. I would imagine with, with um, all, all of the training and all the work that goes into to performing and then performing in front of a live audience that, uh, in Aaron's case, just terrifies the pants off of them, I, I would imagine that there is a, a thrill and it would be tough to kind of keep some of these performers away if they're not at the, those uh, necessarily peak abilities, especially with, with how dangerous the margins can be. How important is it to kind of have that data and be like, hey, look, you need to take a break here. We need you at like 100% given the, the difficulty of what you're, uh, what you're doing here. Yeah, I think the data has been really important and a really successful application that I've brought to the show to help artists understand a little bit more why we have these discussions about workload and managing when they perform and when they don't perform. Um, of course, they want to be on stage every day. That's why they're here. And that is my ultimate goal too. So it's an education piece. So that's something that I've been working on this group with for since 2019 when I joined the show is education about what they're doing in the gym, how we can do prehabs, the preventative exercise programs, uh, the importance of strength and conditioning. And this then gives that buy-in for them to join into all of those programs, which because they see the results of them being on stage uh, consistently every day. I think sometimes you see like trailers and stuff and uh, some of these things can get the, the impression like, yeah, here's two hours of crazy stuff. Uh, there's your there's your evening. And while again, crazy stuff is happening, there is a, a story kind of inter intertwined with, with all of that as well. Uh, and that and Kuza, uh certainly that that is also the, the case. I won't give everything away here, but um, <laughs> as, as, as someone who, who has done performance and seeing all of these performers, how much fun is it to, to be able to tell a, a story through some of these amazing acts as well? Yeah, I think it, it touches an audience. You know, we've got the high-level acrobatics, but then we have our amazing characters who are dancers or former acrobats that have transformed into the, the acting side of things, and they're transferring the audience through the storyline of what Kuza is. So it's a joy just to watch that. And then I've learned a lot coming from sport of, of that acting world and how, how they tell the story or what their facial expressions do to reach the audience and create the emotions that you felt on Wednesday. Um, in, in sport, you're, you're obviously always pushing to, to better yourself. Um, in, in entertainment, there, there's always evolutions. Um, I uh, not, not to, again, to draw comparisons, but, but I come from a, a world of professional wrestling where it's like, okay, these guys have jumped off of this thing, so now we're going to jump off of a bigger thing. And that there's always that, that evolution. And th there are certainly expectations. I can't imagine uh, there's going to be, oh, you've seen one wheel of death, you've seen all of them. That's, that's going to be something that scares people um, always. But, but how have you seen, in, in your time, how have you seen that this process kind of uh, evolve with some of the, the risk-taking and the performance? I think now we're we always on the coaching side of things. We'll do a yearly review of every show and the coaches all get together and 
rank different acts, provide feedback, because if you're on one show for many years, you, you see your show all the time, but if we get some outside feedback from coaches that are on other shows, we collaborate and talk to each other about different ideas. So it's a, a team process to assess the shows and see where we could potentially uh, add some more difficulty or improve the, the artistry side of, of acts as well to continue to tell that story. I'm curious, when developing new performances and new acts, are there ones that come across your plate and you go, nope, that is way too dangerous to try to be executing on a nightly basis? Uh, it's, it's different. So in the process of bringing in a new act, that actually happens at our international headquarters in Montreal. So we have a big team that works with that. They design the equipment, they design the acrobatic act, and they go through all of that process. So when they come to our show, the act is generally already created and we're the team that then puts them on the stage here. Um, so, yeah, we don't really have to go through that process. We have other teams that are in the development phase uh, in Montreal. When you took on this uh, coaching position with Cirque, how much did you not realize is going on behind the scenes that maybe you were immersed in? Because I'll sit in the stands and I'll see the performers and I'll see the stage design and you've got the musicians and the singers and the, the whole nine yards. How much is actually going on behind that I can't see? There, there's a lot going on. So behind the big top, we have a mini big top, which is our artistic tent. Uh, that is where the artists have their dressing rooms. So they're running in and out, getting changed into the many different costumes that they, that they have and perform in during the show. But we also have a Pilates area. So we have an artist coach. She teaches Pilates on a weekly basis. We have a TV that gives a live feed of the show so the artists can watch the show and know what's going on. We have some artists that might be playing board games at different points in the show before they do their warm-up. We have a low wire for our high wire artists, uh, some gymnastics mats, a trampoline, our wardrobe and our performance medicine uh, room. And it's always busy. There's people uh, warming up, getting ready for their acts and also doing their cooling down processes in preparation for the next day. And I'm just curious, today, for example, is a performance day. There's a show that's available at 7.30 on Saturday. There's a sh two shows, one at 3.30, one at 7 p.m. I'm just curious, for from your perspective, and then maybe also from uh, the athletes and artists' perspective, what does a performance day look like? Each day will be different. We actually have a show running right now. So depending on the number of shows that we have, our training schedule will be different. So on a single show day is where we try and do our regular training requirements to maintain the acts, but also it's where we will do any projects that we have. So if we have a new artist coming in, it's where we spend more time on that act to integrate them into the show. And then on double show days or even triple show days, we try and reduce what we're doing in terms of the training before the show so that our technical team, our site team can also do all of their elements that they need to do to prepare for the show. Is there, when you're here, like the Kuza's here, August 25th to, to October 8th, is there much for, for downtime for you guys? Like, I know this is in Australia, but we like to think our city's kind of nice. Do, do you get to, to explore things at all, or are you guys just kind of in your own world for a, a couple of months out there? Uh, well, my, myself, I always try and get outdoors on our days off. So we've already done some excursions while we've been here. So we generally get one or two days off on Monday, Tuesday is generally our weekend and it's, you get to do whatever you want. So people go out and explore or they use the time just to relax in their apartment. So it's really up to us what we'd like to do, but I definitely have been exploring as much as I can. 
Uh, anything on your to-do list while you're here or just kind of see where the day takes you? Uh, been to Jasper, been to Banff, Lake Louise, Painter Lake. So definitely more hiking, exploring, some backcountry hunts, huts are on the list. So, yeah, I'll be outdoors as much as I can. Uh, you've done more around here than I have, and I live here. Yep. Uh, that, that, that's awesome. Um, Cherry, the, the show looks phenomenal. Like I said, Aaron, Aaron It is has been, phenomenal. I can tell you that right now. Yeah, it, it is uh, high Thank on you. my to-do list. Uh, but first off, congratulations on, on what looks like just, just an amazing show. And uh, best of luck as, as things continue. Thank you very much.